Good evening. Good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Um, we may be kind of ambitious today, um, and we'll see how it's going. I'm not going to just you know go breakneck speed for the sake of finishing the book of Genesis. But if we are able, we are going to look at verse. Uh, sorry, chapters 48, uh, 49, and 50. And uh, <laughs> fat chance, but we'll we'll start out. So now we are at the really the conclusion of this narrative of the story of Israel, Israel the man and his sons and the fact that through the Lord's providential hand, Joseph finds himself in a place where he is, he is in a position of extraordinary power and through that power, he's able to save the, the family, the family of God, basically. And so now we find ourselves at the end of Jacob's life. <clears throat> and in these chapters, we're going to actually get some prophetic direction through the Lord, but through the, the, the words of Jacob concerning each of his sons. And we're going to see how the table is set for the years that they will be in, in Egypt. And many of those years, they will literally be in bondage to the Egyptians. It starts all out all wonderful, but I'm sure after the time of Daniel, and the Pharaoh who Daniel served, when th that era passed, things changed pretty radically for God's people, the Jews. And, uh, and so we're going to pick it up right here in verse 1 of chapter 48. Now it came to pass after these things, and the these things that's being referenced is all that happened with Jacob finally realizing that his son Joseph is alive, meeting Joseph getting set up uh, through the blessings of Pharaoh to be set up in the land of Egypt. And so now all that's happened. And uh, after these things, Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him two, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan and bless me. Now we know Luz was renamed by, uh, by Jacob to be Bethel. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So what we are, what we are seeing here in these first four verses is Joseph, who is a very important man, so it's not like he's at his father's side all the time. He's informed, hey, your father's very sick. He pro probably doesn't have much time. And, and so Joseph immediately goes to his father's side, bringing with him his two sons, identified there as Manasseh and Ephraim. And it's interesting what Jacob does, because as he meets Joseph again, the first thing that he, he feels important to share with his son is the promise that God made to him in Bethel. Now, you remember when we were <clears throat> back in Genesis 28, this was when Jacob is in that place and he has the vision of this ladder that goes up to heaven and the angels of God are, are ascending and descending from that ladder. And in that moment, God reiterates to him the promise, the promise that they will be a great nation, the promise that the land that he is in is the land that God has given to them, the promise that, that uh, you know, they will be great. And you could tell that 
this promise is something that really changed the course of Jacob's life. It really connected him to his father and his grandfather, Isaac and Jacob. It really gave him a confidence that even that they're now parked in Egypt, God's plan for them, which he has seen all the way through his life, is ultimately to bring them back to the land and ultimately to make them a people there. And so knowing that Joseph is, first of all, very powerful and therefore the destiny of his family is more or less in Joseph's hands, and also knowing that he is about to confer on Joseph the kind of double portion of inheritance that typically the firstborn son would get, he wants Joseph to know this promise. He wants Joseph to know that I, your dad, Jacob, also known as Israel, is holding on to this promise as, as we discussed in men's Bible study last night. He has faith in that. It's, it's, uh, it's just as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, you know, the substance of things not seen. Um, and so... He passes this on to his son. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Now, I love my dad a lot, but if my dad told me that Matthew and Paul were his, I'd say, say what? <laughs> you know, no, they're not, they're mine. But, but this is a very important statement he's making here. It has profound implications for the way in which the inheritance, the God-given inheritance of the land is going to be um, determined. Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Interesting that using Reuben and Simeon as examples of how he will view them as his own flesh and blood first rank he uses the two oldest sons because I think he's kind of saying that these two young men are really going to kind of jump to the head of the list, so to speak. Your offspring, offspring um, whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a, a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, now let's just stop there for a moment. What we're seeing here is that, um, that Jacob is remembering his favorite wife, the woman that he wanted to marry from the start. And because of the, the trickery of Laban, he ends up first marrying the older sister Leah and then later is able to marry Rachel, his beloved. And um, she is the mother of Joseph. And Joseph was a favored son of his father. And in, and in Jacob's mind, that was the way it was supposed to be. And then all this other complication got in. And so <clears throat> the, um, the thing that, that Jacob is doing here is he is giving to Ephraim and Manasseh that, that premier spot, he's, he's stepping out of the convention of, of the time, which is that the firstborn son always got a double portion. He was the one that was expected to carry on the family name. All of that kind of, of protocol was, was very ingrained in those societies of that time, except, of course, we know that there's already been quite a sequence of the younger brother being preferred over the older brother. 
Um, Jacob himself was the younger of he and Esau, yet he was preferred. Isaac, was his, his father, was the, the youngest uh, as between him and Ishmael, yet Isaac was preferred. And, and Jacob was preferred. And now here comes Joseph, and he's being preferred. This also explains why um, when we see the 12 tribes listed throughout Scripture, we see... Um, slightly different configurations of those 12 tribes. We know there were 12 actual sons born, of which Joseph was one. But now, by virtue of what Jacob is doing here, he's adding two more names to the roster of sons as it relates to those who will receive inheritance, that being Ephraim and Manasseh. And so in a lot of the lists, you won't see Joseph's name, but you'll see Ephraim and you'll see Manasseh. Um, and you'll see... All different permutations. For example, in, in Revelation, where you see the 12 uh, tribes, each yielding 12,000 individuals who will be part of that core of witnesses, the name Dan is left out. And, and we'll get to Dan in, in a few moments here as to why that might be. Um, and then Ephraim is named, uh, or I'm sorry, Manasseh is named, and I think Joseph is named instead of Ephraim. Um, but he's representing Ephraim. So you see these different permutations of the 12 tribes and who's the patriarch of each one of those tribes. There's actually 20 different permutations you find in scripture of how the 12 tribes are described. And it's interesting also, you've, you've probably seen this in other contexts with other numbers, such as the number seven or the number three or even the number five. But the number 12 is a very significant um, number in scripture it's an important number to god for obvious reasons because it's almost always associated with aspects of government or administration in the way in which god is rolling out his plans for humankind there are 12 tribes 12 apostles 12 princes of ishmael 12 pillars in moses's altar 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate 12 cakes or loaves of shewbread 12 platters, 12 silver bowls, 12 gold pans for the service in the tabernacle, 12 spies to search out the land, 12 memorial stones, 12 governors under Solomon, 12 stones in Elijah's altar, 12 in each group of musicians and singers for Israel's worship, um, you know, on and on. 12 Ephesian men filled with the Holy Spirit, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes sealed and preserved through the tribulation. You see all this throughout scripture. And it is for reasons I think we'll fully understand when we are in the presence of the Lord. Uh, this number is one that the Lord uses time and again. Um, and, and it's kind of cool when you see that. The, the tree of life in heaven yields 12 fruits. Um, so, and the dimensions of the new Jerusalem incorporate uh, the number 12, 12,000 furlongs. So... We, we come to verse 8, then Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, who are these? So obviously at this point, perhaps, uh, well, one thing we know is that uh, Jacob's eyesight at this point in time was not all that great. Can you imagine living in, a, in, a, in an era where there were no uh, eye correction lenses of any kind? And so at some point, man, you are really at a disadvantage and, um, and so he, by this time, he's not able to see very well. And so he says, who are these? And Joseph says to his father, the, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. 
Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Interesting, because that was the same situation that Jacob had with his father Isaac when he uh, came before him and tricked his dad into thinking he was Esau. Um, Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. And you can imagine the joy that Jacob has at this moment because again, he lived for a number of years believing that his son was dead. Over 13 years, he lived with the belief that his son was dead. And then he has the wonderful reunion that we saw in the previous chapter uh, coming to his son and, and enjoying the fact that Joseph is alive and he has fellowship with him again which he never thought would happen. And now he's meeting his grandchildren through Joseph. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near. So you can imagine if I'm I'm Jacob, that the way in which Joseph positions his sons as he puts Manasseh in front of Jacob's right hand, because Manasseh's the older of the two, and, you know, what which, which Joseph is expecting, that when Jacob goes to bless these boys, he's going to go like this, and he's going to bless the older. And, and the right hand was always the position of power. Uh, it was always the p- position of favor. It was the position of help. This is why... <laughs> When Jesus is testifying before the high priest and all his, the Sanhedrin, and, um, and they're, they're quizzing Jesus about who, whether he thinks he's the Messiah or not, in Mark 14, 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And of course, this is when, you know, the, the high priest's head explodes and they rip their clothes and they bang their heads on the wall and everything because Jesus had said something that they thought was so blasphemous that he would actually be sitting at God's right hand. So the right hand was always the position of preference. It was power, it was safety, it was help. It's also the reason why uh, people for centuries did everything they could possibly do to keep their children from becoming left-handed. I am left-handed the unfavored child. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, as you're a little kid and your parents are teaching you the very basics to how to take care of yourself, uh, one of the first things they teach you how to do is to brush your teeth. And I remember as a kid, I'd pick up the toothbrush, take it out of my hand, put it in my right hand. To this day, I brush my teeth with my right hand. If I tried to brush my teeth with my left hand, I would probably poke my eye out, trying to, you know, I, I do it with my right hand, yet I do most everything with my left hand. Uh, And it's because of that mindset that the right hand is the right, you know, be right-handed or be left behind, you know, kind of thing. So, So Joseph is wheeling his sons up such that the older will be squared off with Jacob's right hand, the younger will be squared off to Jacob's left hand. And, um, And so we see here, Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, because he's the younger, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near. 
Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's hand, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So here comes Jacob, and he goes, whoop, like that. And I'm sure Joseph is very surprised. Um, and we see here, he, and he blessed Joseph and said, um, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is, this is an amazing blessing here. He's, he's giving a threefold invocation as he's blessing these young men. He's blessing them first as the God, he's imploring the God as the God who was the covenant maker with his father and, and his grandfather. And then the God who has fed me, Jehovah Jireh, the provider. And then the angel, the angel of the Lord who has redeemed me from all evil. He's invocating God on three bases. And he's doing this for the benefit of these grandsons of his, but because of the position of his hands, he's giving preference to Ephraim. How does Joseph react? <laughs> Verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He, he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Now, here's Joseph. And, and you know, of all of the individuals that we've been introduced to over the course of, of um, the book of Genesis that we've been studying, Joseph stands out, let's be honest. Joseph stands out as, as the most solid citizen we've encountered in this book. But even Joseph, like so many people, expect God to work in a certain way. And usually we expect God to recognize and operate in accordance with the same conventions that we believe are correct or that we have adopted. And we've seen already now with with. Um, with uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and then with Jacob and Esau. And now we see it here, where Joseph, in a real sense, because of his two sons, has been moved up all the way up to the top of the list, that God, for his own reasons, and they usually turn out to be exactly, perfectly correct, um, he, he breaks with convention. This is why Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. You know these verses well. God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I've lived long enough in my life to have encountered multiple times things that, that happen very much contrary to what I was expecting or hoping for. And I thought I was operating in the will of God. Um, and then I see the aftermath of the thing. And I, and I marvel at how God has done something 
that I would have never thought, for, thought of or asked. And the outcome is, is glorifying to God. And, you know, Joseph, if anyone knows this, and we'll see that he actually does know this when we get to chapter 50, um, Joseph wasn't prepared for that. He was very much invested in his two sons with, with Manasseh being the preferred son and Ephraim being, you know, the spare, <laughs> to quote a recent book. Um, and, and Jacob knows the will of the Lord here. And, and so he says, I know my son. I know how you feel. <laughs> Believe me, I know how you feel. Uh, my brother, my older brother almost killed me for pulling this trick. Um, but uh, he goes with what the Lord has put on his heart. So he blessed them, verse 20 that day, saying, by you, Israel will, will bless. Uh, by, by you, Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now what we're we're reading here is that Jacob has another track of land and the only place where we read about this conquest that Jacob uh, had against the Amorite with his sword and bow that got this piece of land that he's now giving to Joseph. Uh, The only place we really read that is here. But it turns out that that piece of land, it's a place where he dug a well. And lo and behold, that's the very same well at which Jesus meets the Samaritan woman many, many, many years into the future. John 4, verses 5 and 6, Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. That's a reference to exactly what we just read here in Genesis 48. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this becomes very important in the narrative of the Gospels later on. But this is a piece of land that that Jacob apparently... Uh, conquered himself and now he is bequeathing it here to his son Joseph. Now we come into uh, chapter 49 and in this chapter Jacob is now going to be giving the same kind of prophetic direction to each of his sons much like we saw uh, Moses doing before he passed and um, well we haven't seen it yet but Um, And also Abraham um, also did such a thing. And so we pick it up at verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now here God is is basically going to use his servant Israel to lay out a future summary of what to expect from each of these patriarchs who will lead Israel. Uh, the 12 tribes going into the, the future. So these words are prophetic. Um, he says, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. So he's introducing this as it will be a, a prophetic utterance. So he's, he goes right down the list from oldest to youngest. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Sounds pretty good so far. It's like, wow, this guy's a solid citizen. However, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it 
he went up to my couch. Now we know that uh, Reuben fell into sin with Bilhah, one of the concubines of his father. And uh, this was a major, major breach of trust with his father. It was a very immoral act by almost any standard, even the standards of that day in ancient Canaan. And it was something that undid, I think it was a sage on the part of Jacob to start out by identifying some of the characteristics that probably were true of Reuben. And yet it, it's a clear lesson that no matter how uh, gifted you are, no matter what kinds of achievements you've, you've been able to achieve, if you have a major character flaw and you act on that, you've basically undone all that God has put into you. This is one of the, the most heartbreaking things for the body of Christ, to see a very prominent, um, impactful minister of God who has done so much for the kingdom, maybe has impressed upon your life uh, confidence because you understand the word better. He's fortified you with apologetics or whatever. And then, and then that individual has a, a, a fall. Now, we know that the grace of God covers all sin and uh, assuming that individual's heart was, was truly with the Lord and yet they messed up that way, they'll, they'll see heaven, but they will answer for that misstep and the damage that they do to the cause of Christ, in some cases, it's just incalculable. And so that's kind of the lot of Reuben here. And it's, again, it's a shame. Um, it's interesting, too, that there was a legacy built from, from that weakness because in all of Israel's history, no great prophet, no judge, no warrior hero ever came from the tribe of Reuben. So, unfortunate. Then we move to verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Now, this is a reference back to the, the reaction that Simeon and Levi had relative to the, she uh, uh, to the people of Shechem, the men of Shechem, because Shechem, the, the son of the leader of that city, uh, had an indiscretion with Dinah, their sister, and they tricked the, the men of that, of that city by saying that, look, we will intermarry with your people and you can intermarry with our people, but first you all must be circumcised. And then as soon as they're all kind of incapacitated uh, after their circumcision, uh, Simeon and Levi go into that city and basically kill all the men. And they also destroyed a lot of the animals. And so Jacob is hearkening back to that. And he's saying that, look, you know, there, there's a way to deal with things that's a godly way. And then there's a way that discredits the Lord. And this is why, you know, we were talking a lot earlier about this, this uh, discussion on the podcast of last week with this this street epistemologist that I, I, I met with. And the one thing I was praying about all the way before that and even during is no matter what's coming at you, you don't want to respond in a way that's pugilistic, like, like you're boxing with the, verbally boxing with this individual and that you have a desire to beat him or anything like that. Um, again, no one ever came to Christ because they lost an argument. 
And, and when, when we as Christians approach a discussion about the Lord or about the cause of Christ in a way that's pugilistic, we dishonor the Lord. It's much like what these two gentlemen are, are hearing from their fathers to say, okay, uh, the Shechemites did, or at least one of them did, defile our daughter and, and sister. But there's a way to deal with that, that that honors God, and then there's a way to deal with it that dishonors God, and that's what they chose. And so this is why we see what Jacob says to them. Um, he says, uh, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and will scatter them in Israel. And uh, and that's, you know, kind of what their future tracked like. And, um, you know, Simeon was largely disintegrated within the land. Their, their portion was kind of within the bounds of Judah, and they just kind of disappeared as a distinct people. Um, and then we see here between verses 8 and 12, perhaps the most significant prophecy of this passage, uh, and that is the prophecy relative to Judah, between verses 8 and 12. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. Now, let me just stop there and say, as we have tracked with Judah through the course of our study, uh, Judah doesn't stand out above his brothers as this this beacon of morality and, and uh, godliness. Um, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. It was him who decided to have a dalliance with a, with a harlot that turned out to be his daughter-in-law. Uh, and yet God is singling out this man. Now, there's obviously other qualities of Judah that perhaps the biblical narrative doesn't reveal to us. I'm not saying that he was much worse than the brothers or anything like that. Just that when we think about the fact that Judah of the 12 you know of the 12 brothers that Judah is singled out to ultimately be the line through which the Messiah comes don't hurt your head on trying to find a reason that that stands out from the scripture because it is God's choice for his reasons he created Judah he created the rest of these guys so he knows that Judah was the instrument that he intended and created to bring about the, the, to be the progenitor of the line that will ultimately bring Messiah. We don't need to question it. We don't need to rationalize it. We don't need to analyze it. We need to say, God said it. It's done. Amen. And, and so he's, he's really building up Judah's, uh, you know, his star. Um, then in verse 10, we see there, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And by the way, Judah was the kingly tribe. When, when things fell apart after, after Solomon's reign and the kingdom was rent, Judah rises up as the most prominent, the most powerful tribe that ultimately becomes the southern kingdom. And so the scepter, that is the scepter of rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, depending on where you read, uh, Many sources, including the Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, the Targum, uh, identifies Shiloh as a name for Jesus. And it's very often used that way. Uh, but the Hebrew word Shiloh uh, is actually rendered whose it is. 
And so if you read this verse 10 with that in mind, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until the one whose, whose it belongs to comes. And so whether you view Shiloh as a name for Jesus or as that phrase, it gets to the same thing that Jesus Christ, Messiah, who will ultimately come down from Judah, will be that king, that ultimate king, that king of kings. And this becomes a pivotal messianic prophecy that you could kind of marry right up with Genesis 3.15, that, that one is coming who is going to put all of these things that we struggle with in our world right. Um, and he says there, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What he's speaking of here is that when this, this ultimate king, when Shiloh comes, the prosperity that they will enjoy will, will mean that, that grapevines will be so prominent that people will be tying their, their donkeys to them, uh, which you would never do if you know, grapevines are, are deer. He washes his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. These are, these are euphemistic phrases of, of how rich and how uh, prosperous the time will be. Clearly a, a pointer towards the millennial kingdom when Jesus will reign on the earth. And so this is a glorious prophecy relative to Judah. And then we see there, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. And so he's going to be enriched by seaborne trade. And, um, and then we read about Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed down his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now, in the case of uh, Issachar, his territory will become a place that's very fertile, very uh, productive in terms of foodstuffs and the like. But it was also a place where invading armies often came through. And so their people were very much often, uh, you know, being oppressed by invading armies or taken as slaves and the like. Now we come to Dan, and this is the unfortunate one, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. Now, in the case of Dan, what we're seeing here is a disparity between calling and achievement. Because Dan is described here as one who will judge his people but then he's also described as a serpent, by the way, a viper by the path. In other words, an obstructor, uh, one who causes trouble. Um, so the calling that he has is a high calling to be the judge of his people. The actuality of the way in which Dan will present itself is quite the opposite. And sure enough, as you look at the, the history of Dan, a poster child, Danite, was the judge known as Samson. Samson was somebody who was anointed from a very young age. He was appointed to be judge of Israel. He was somebody of extraordinary gifting. And we know what happened to Samson. He was a he-man with a she-problem. And ultimately, his, his reign or his, his administration as judge ended 
very, very tragically. And as, as we progress forward in the history of Israel, we see that the tribe of Dan was one of the first and most prolific in terms of bringing idolatry into the northern kingdoms. When we go to Israel, and we'll be there in a couple of weeks now, uh, we always go up to Dan. And when we go up there, and it's right near the border with Lebanon and Syria, it, it has reconstructed there a pagan altar that used to exist. And that was a place where um, the Israelites, because they didn't want their, the, peop the people of the kingdom of Israel to go down to Bethlehem to worship at the temple, they constructed altars in, uh, I believe it was in Bethel in the south and Dan in the north. And these altars basically became uh, blasphemy central. And Dan was the tribe that really promoted that and ultimately uh, they pay a big price for that. Now in the midst of this prophetic utterance by Jacob, he pauses in verse 18 to interject a, a prayer of deliverance from the Lord. He says, verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. It just pops in there out of the blue. And I could imagine Jacob as he's going through the, the roster of his sons and what will become of them and what they will ultimately bring to bear for the people of Israel. He, he, he realizes, wow, this is, this is really a hard message to give and the only thing that can make it palatable, that could make it something that we could receive is the salvation of the Lord. And, and I think that's kind of where we've all been uh, frequently over the last three years, where you just look at the way things are going, you look at some of the things that are happening in our government, you look at some of the things that are happening in our society, it hurts your head to think about these things. You, you can't understand how people could, could just make such a clean break from common sense and common decency and do the things that they do. And you know what the Bible says about the way in which the times of the end will look just before the Lord returns. And it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking. And the only thing we can cling to is what he says here, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. That's what we, that's, that's the great hope. So he comes now to Gad in verse 19. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. And, and the tribe of Gan, uh, Gad uh, is, is one where they experienced a lot of, um, of battles because they're on the east side of the Jordan River. And so very often invading armies would be reaching them first. So these were fighting people. Um, but at the same time, they were often um, put upon by foreign armies that oppressed them. Um, uh, Jeremiah 49.1, against the Ammonites, uh, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in, his, in its cities? Um, yet the tribe of Gad provides many, many fine troops that ultimately serve King David. Um, and so uh, that's, that's Gad's lot in life. Then in verse 20, we read, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. So uh, in, in his case, um, Asher was, lived in a place that was rich, fertile, productive, provided a lot of food. And they were kind of on the northern coast, Mediterranean coast of Canaan. And um, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 33, 24, 
Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Now that particular statement of, of Moses uh, got the attention of a, lot, of a lot of these wildcat oil drillers who believed, well, maybe this is a prophetic uh, word of knowledge from the Lord that there are stores of oil there. And so there's been a lot of exploration of oil and gas in that region. We do know that huge stores of natural gas have been found just off the coast where this is in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this might ultimately be the catalyst that provokes the Ezekiel War because we know in that war that the, the powers from the north are coming into Israel, as the word says, to take a spoil. And that spoil might in fact be uh, the natural gas and other riches there in the land. Uh, Naphtali is as a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Um, these were a free mountain people. And, um, and so it's kind of speaking to um, their carefree type of existence. But now he turns his attention to Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. That might be an allusion to the way in which he was treated by his brothers. And yet he was indeed a fruitful uh, individual. He was somebody that basically refreshed and preserved his, his nation. But his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb and blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who, has, who was separate from his brothers." This is an absolutely tremendous uh, tribute to his son Joseph and what Joseph meant to this clan of people because he was the one that refreshed them. He was the one who saved them. He was the one, as we track through scripture, that more times than not, many more times than not, did things God's way even to the immediate detriment of himself. Uh, the things that he was willing to do. I mean, the best example might be his resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife. He's there in the house all alone with her. Uh, she's a powerful woman. Uh, maybe by getting her favor, who knows what could that mean for him? He doesn't even entertain it. He would not want to uh, disrespect his God. He would not want to disrespect his master. He was a man of integrity. And so uh, his father is blessing him mightily because of the example that he set, because of the way in which he distinguished himself from his brothers. As, as at the time before he was you know, sent away, he was not the very youngest, but the second to the youngest. And you get a sense that his older brothers were quite a bit older than him. And so you, you would almost expect that a kid in his position would do the things that emulate what the brothers do so that he could kind of fit in he, he was never concerned with fitting in. He was more concerned with pleasing God and honoring his father. And so this comes out uh, very, very loud and clear in the midst of this particular 
um, tribute that his father issues to him. Now we move to Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Now what's being said about Benjamin here is that this was a tribe that had a, a violent spirit about him. He's de described as a ravenous wolf. When we see some of the individuals that were Benjamites, we can at least see in a portion of their history this description coming through. For example, the first king, Saul, was a Benjamite. And we know that while he started in a humble place, he very soon became a, a very paranoid, very cruel, and ruthless individual. Um, uh, Saul, who became Paul, we know that before the Lord got a hold of him, he was, he was somebody who ruthlessly pursued Christians with the desire to eliminate them. And, um, and then, of course, in Judges 19 and 20, there's an account where a Levite traveling through the territory of Benjamin is traveling with a young male servant and then his concubine. And he stops in a city in, um, in Benjamin for the night. And while he's there, much like what happens to, uh, in the home of Lot uh, later on, um, or previously rather, uh, the men of the town circle the house and they demand that the host send out this Levite to, so that they could abuse him, know him carnally, as the scripture says. And, and to placate the, the, the rabble, the crowd, instead they send out the Levite's concubine. And the men of the, of the area abuse this woman to the point of her death. So the next morning, and it's very cruel the way the whole thing comes up because the next morning the Levite comes out of the house, there's his concubine prone on the steps of the house. He says, come on, get up, we gotta go. And of course she doesn't move because she's dead. He takes her back to his place. He cuts her body in 12 pieces, sends a piece to each of the 12 tribes, basically saying, look how depraved, pot calling the kettle black, but look how depraved the, um, the, the people of Benjamin are. And so Israel all gathers together and they, they come and they, and they put an ultimatum to Benjamin and they say, look, you give us the men who perpetrated this horrible crime and, and we will execute them and this will be finished. And they, of course, wouldn't do that. And it ultimately almost resulted in, in the rest of Israel annihilating the tribe of Benjamin. But the point is that these people had this violent spirit about them that was manifested in the way in which they carried on coming into the future. And, uh, and then we read there in verse 28, all these are the tribes of Israel and this is what their father spoke to them and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So somehow the Lord conveyed to Jacob, to Israel, what he is to reveal to each one of his sons. And these things become uh, very much true as we track forward in the history of Israel. So it looks like we will uh, cover the last chapter next week, and uh, that will be the, the sterling conclusion to the book of Genesis. I want to commend you for going through that because, uh, again, um, the book of Genesis, and most especially the first 11 chapters, that is the foundation upon which the Bible rests 
And so when we, we look at other places in Scripture, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it, it's, it's undergirded by what we learn in Genesis. And when you take on board what Genesis says, starting with the first verse of the whole book, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, if you're having trouble with Christian faith, just meditate on that verse. Because if, uh, uh, if you don't believe that verse, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of the book. But if you do believe that verse, then you can, you can track through. Not to say that then you don't have to question anything that you find in the Bible. By all means, ask all the questions you want and can. But to understand that we, in our worldview, we understand where we came from. You'd be surprised how, that one, how you answer that one question can really have a profound effect on the rest of your life. If you believe that your existence is a total random event, it makes it really hard for you to value life, value the life of other people, find purpose in your life, have confidence in your future. And this is why uh, nihilism is taking over especially with young people. They, they, they don't see why anything matters. This is why we, we keep being horrified every time we look at these news pages and see the latest horrific crime. You say, who thinks of stuff like that? Who would do that? Why would anyone do that? And the reason is they are so frustrated with their own existence that they find no value in anyone's existence. And so the titillation of perpetrating something really horrible is, is something that they could value more than actual life. And, um, and that's why I say the study of Genesis is, is so vital to your understanding of the whole counsel of God. So I commend you for being through, uh, being with this study right the way through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this book, Lord, and, and just for your great loving care for us that you preserved all these, these uh, accounts, Lord, and, and you've made come alive the, the people, Lord, who laid the groundwork for your plan, your providential plan for the salvation of humanity, Lord. And as we take on board the concepts and, and the events of, of Genesis, Lord, it enhances our understanding of all of the things that come after and even right up to the very end times, Lord. And so, Lord, continue to pour into us your word. Continue to minister it to our hearts and minds through your spirit. We thank you so much, Lord, for meeting us here tonight. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.